Hello, everyone. Today on The Van Maren Show, we're going to be talking to Abigail Schreier about her new book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. That's coming right up. Stay with us. Welcome back to the Van Maren Show on LifeSiteNews.com. Today we're going to be talking to Abigail Schreier of the Wall Street Journal about her incredible new book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. We've discussed the topic of transgenderism on this show before, and a lot of people have asked a lot of questions. How did this happen so quickly? Why are so many girls seeking transition? How did this all take place? How did the trans activists call colonize our culture in such a short amount of time. Abigail Schreier is a Yale-educated lawyer. She's a commentator who's written on this issue for the Wall Street Journal, uh, for Newsweek, for many other publications. Her new book is really incredible. The research is essential. She interviewed parents, therapists, doctors, and activists about the transgender craze, and she was kind enough to join me for a discussion about that book. Here is our conversation. First question is, what prompted you to uh, swim out into these shark-infested waters? You know, I didn't really want to. Um, A reader wrote to me. I had written, you know, I'm a lawyer, and I had written a piece for the Wall Street Journal on the transgender laws. There are certain, there are laws now in California and New York that um, assign civil and criminal penalties to someone who fails to use uh, someone's requested pronoun. Um, so I made the argument in the Wall Street Journal that this is straightforwardly unconstitutional, and it is. Um, in America, under the four- First Amendment, you can't make people say, the government can't make people say anything. Um, and, and the actual jurisprudence on this is actually quite clear. Um, so that was the argument I made, and a reader wrote to me and said, listen, it, it's clear you're willing to talk about anything to do with transgender anything. Um, not many journalists are. My daughter was caught up in this craze it's like a cult she said um you know i'm a lawyer can you can you i I have a lot of families who are in the same predicament i've talked to um are you willing to write about this and i thought well that's probably the last thing i need and um so i got in touch with my editor and i was an opinion journalist and i got in touch with my editor and i said do you have a uh, investigative journalist that i can uh, point to and point this to and and he said yes and i i sent the contacts this woman and all of her uh, parent contacts on to an investigative uh, journalist. And then I waited for many months and nothing came. And I thought, well, if really no one's willing to touch this, that's sort of exactly the sort of story that a journalist ought to pursue. It's supposed to be journalists who pursue the stories that are true um, or, or seem to be true that are worth investigating and that no one else wants to talk about. So, um, so I did, and I took it on, and I wrote a big piece for the Wall Street Journal, and it got a lot of you know, interest. And a lot of parents wrote to me from all over the country and said, my daughter's going through this too. And, and all of a sudden, I had a, a lot of material for a book. 
Yeah, so to start off on on why this is affecting girls more than boys, I think that point got a lot of recognition recently when J.K. Rowling made the same point that, that there's so many girls that are coming out as trans, especially in the last couple of years. To explain to somebody who doesn't really understand what's going on, because this is a very bewildering subject for most people, the most common response I get when, when I write about this at all is people just say, what is actually going on? So how would you explain to somebody who's trying to wrap their head around this, uh, what the trans trend is all about and why are girls particularly susceptible? So the thing to know, first of all, is that girls are experiencing a mental health crisis. That's not an overstatement. We have never seen rates of anxiety and depression and cutting and self-harm like this, resulting in hospitalization or just, um, you know, girls reporting and and mental health professionals reporting depression. It is spiking so high and especially for all teenagers, but especially teenage girls, even tweens we're seeing, which we've never seen rates of, of suicide like this. So girls are in a lot of distress today. So that's the first thing to note. The second is that girls are very susceptible to something called social contagion. Girls share in each other's pain. That's one of their modes of friendship is to meet each other where they are and to feel each other's pain and to affirm each other, even if it requires suspending reality. So girls are willing to suspend disbelief to to meet their friends where they are, even if they kind of rationally know the friend isn't right. So we, we've known for a long time that all kinds of epidemics, you know, we call, they were called hysterias once and sometimes people still call them that, are really spread among teenage girls because they tend to take on each other's pain. Now, one of the things that I think most difficult for people to understand is one, how quickly this, this, this phenomenon has taken place. And then secondarily, uh, it seems like the things that, that people are engaging in are, are so catastrophically impactful for the rest of your life. So I've, I've actually been contacted by quite a few parents over the years. I had one mother contact me and say two of her daughters had both identified as transgender. One of them wanted to get a double mastectomy uh, you know, before the age of, of 18. And so what is leading girls to identify as boys? Where are they, where are they picking this up from? And, and how has this happened so quickly? And just because like, I had one mother tell me, I didn't even know this was a thing until my kids came to me identifying as, as transgender. So it seems to a lot of people uh, to have come out of nowhere. It did come out of nowhere, and that's the thing to know. It came out of nowhere because this is not gender dysphoria. So classic gender dysphoria affects overwhelmingly males, and it begins in early childhood, ages two to four. Little boys saying, I'm not a boy, mommy, I'm a girl. Call me a girl. I only want to play with girls. I hate my penis, that kind of thing. And we know what it looks like because there's over a 100-year diagnostic history of gender dysphoria. It's a t- it affects a tiny sliver of the population, and we know what it looks like. This is something different entirely. Girls have now across the West taken over, teenage girls have taken over the demographic. They are the predominant demographic for gender dysphoria and they are the dominant population asking for gender hormones and surgeries. And the reasons we know that it's a peer contagion or social contagion, are there are a variety of reasons, but one of them is just to take note of the explosive numbers. The demographic all of a sudden shifted from preschool age boys to teenage girls with no history of gender dysphoria. See, even the little girls who had gender dysphoria always experienced it its onset as as children, 
Okay, there is no extant scientific literature on adolescent girls suddenly becoming transgender or becoming gender dysphoric. And that's why we know this is, is not typical gender dysphoria. Um, you asked also about why, uh, why it spread so quickly. Um, and there are many reasons for this and I explore them in my book, but I should just, I just want you to know that I get calls every week and sometimes every day from parents just like what you described. They will tell me 15 set or 20 or 30% of my daughter's seventh grade class is now identifying as transgender. These are numbers that don't make any sense unless you're willing to consider that something else is going on. So how is this social contagion spreading? Because the idea that, that, uh, that this many girls suddenly believe they are boys, it has to be coming from somewhere. So even the sort of traditional culprit that some social conservatives would point to, like um, you know, a certain type of, of LGBT education in schools and things like that, this has happened way too quickly to point to a single culprit. So how has this spread so quickly? So it's a confluence of a lot of things that are going on uh, at the same time. First of all, as I mentioned, teenage girls are in a lot of distress. They're in, in the middle of a lot of mental health problems. Second of all, um, the gender ideology in the school systems has never been as pervasive or as aggressive. From, from in California, from age kindergarten on in the public school system, kids are taught that they were assigned a gender at birth based on their genitalia, but that might not be who they really are, and here are the other options. So this is something that begins very early and it progresses and gets more aggressive as they get older. Um, and in California, parents are not even permitted to opt out. Um, so there's the school systems. There's also social media. Social media plays a massive role um, because kids will, first of all, kids spend way more time online and with their so-called online friends in some cases more than they do with friends in real life. We have never seen so much loneliness among teenagers as we see now. They don't spend anywhere near as much time with each other and they spend a lot of time online. And the gurus, the transgender influencers have gotten very successful. They're very charismatic. And a young girl very often before she decides she's transgender will sit and steep on her phone or on YouTube, Reddit. I mean, all the you know major social media sites, TikTok have transgender boosters and they are kids who say things with they describe vague system vague symptoms they say i never really felt fit, like i fit in i never felt perfectly feminine and then i started a course of testosterone and everything got better right now one of the the things most people listening to this podcast will never have heard of that you go through quite extensively is this idea of transgender youtube uh, I remember, what was it, a year and a half ago or something like that, when somebody mentioned this to me, I went down that rabbit hole and spent just about an hour there. And there's this whole subculture, this entire world that I didn't even know existed. So for those who are unfamiliar with this, what is transgender YouTube? What do, what do people find there? And how is this helping drive this phenomenon? Right. So the thing to know about these influencers, these transgender influencers, one thing is they're on every, virtually every social media. And a lot of kids come to them by, by means of a seemingly innocuous or, um, social media site. So a lot of them come to it, for instance, from DeviantArt or one of the web art sharing websites, and they start hearing about this transgender ideology, and it's very interesting to them. It's being boosted and celebrated and whatnot. And the other thing is these are teenagers. Teenagers listen to other teenagers, right. and they are like the most charismatic 
I would describe these influencers as the most charismatic kid in your school, in your high school, sort of times a hundred. I mean, these are the, they have the most produced videos. They, they are really good at what they do. And what they are constantly doing is boosting transgender love and transgender enthusiasm and pushing hormones and surgeries to a bunch of lonely and distressed teenagers. And it's very, very potent. Um, these are teenagers looking to listen to someone, and unfortunately, the people that are waiting for them online are not the best people to be listening to. To get an idea of, of what these transgender YouTube stars are selling, how how are they are, are they drawing people in? So you say they're very charismatic. Uh, they often kind of detail how their transition has made them feel very whole, very happy, all those sorts of things. But one of the things most people can't get over is just how dramatic this is. So some people are going to be listening to this and saying, uh, you you got to be kidding me. Are you telling me that, you know, my daughter could go on to transgender YouTube, check out all these TikTok videos, you know, go down a few social media rabbit holes and come out the other end wanting hormone therapy and, and serious surgery. So what is that? What does that process look like? Because I find that most people just find this like it strains credulity almost. Right. So here's how it begins. Questions that a teenager has, a teenage girl has, that she would normally in a prior era have taken to her friends, she now takes to her truest friend, which is the internet. So when a girl feels uncomfortable in her body, when she's made fun of, when she feels fat, when she feels ugly, she doesn't talk about it with her best friend while they paint their nails. They don't go to the mall together. She goes to Google and she asks, if, am I trans? Or am I, you know, what is my gender? I don't feel comfortable in my body. What might happen? So they start by getting direction from the internet. Then they are directed to these set of videos um, that queue up one after the other after the other. And they are, honestly, I've watched hours of them. They're really fun to watch. Um, they're really fun, upbeat teenagers. One of the things to know about testosterone is it gives you a euphoria. It gives you a bit of a high. So people who have started, especially young women who have started testosterone, they cannot wait to tell their friends how great it is. And the other thing it does is it actually does suppress anxiety. So they, they feel great and they can't wait to tell everyone. Um, and it does one more thing, and this is in some ways, you know, quite, quite insidious. It redistributes fat. And as girls are going through puberty, of course, their bodies are changing in ways that are that are really difficult to manage at first. Um, and they always go through an awkward physical period, or very often they do. And it redistributes fat. So now you you have that thigh gap you always wanted, and you feel great. And you can't, even though you have no medical training and no knowledge of the long-term risks, and certainly no appreciation for them, you can't wait to tell every other teen why they should try it. Now, give us a sense of just how extreme these numbers are. We've seen in the UK a spike of about 4,000%, which is just staggering. Um, anecdotally, I know a lot of parents have come forward, say there's multiple trans kids in a single family. Based on your research, how prevalent do you think this is? What are a, a few numbers that will help us uh, get an idea of just how widespread this is? So this is up thousands of percentage points for sure in, in, in the U.S. The question is how much. And the reason we can't even tell exactly is because in the UK where there's 4,000%, you have to have a diagnosis still of gender dysphoria in order to proceed with hormones, okay? You don't need that in the US. You just go to an informed consent clinic and you say, I feel uncomfortable in my, in my, in my body. I know I have gender dysphoria. I've always felt this way. And you sign a waiver and you get it. 
So because we, you don't even need the diagnosis, the numbers are harder to track. I can only tell you that it's extremely high. We know it's up thousands of percentage points. We know that you know the number of gender surgeries since I think in the year between 2016 and 2017 quadrupled for um, girls, for women, um, biological girls. And we know that, you know, and I can tell you that I get calls from parents all the time who will tell me my daughter's at one of the toniest private girl, all girls schools in our city, you know, 20% of the class now says it's transgender. Um, that's, that's very common. And of course, that, that's a number that doesn't make sense with gender dysphoria. No, there's a few different, uh, few different um, side trails I want to go down there. But I guess first I'll ask, how are parents reacting to this? So I, I've, I've spent a lot of time on, well, you'll notice that actually uh, just recently a subreddit on, on, on gender confusion got, got taken down uh, as too critical. There are uh, parents now that are meeting, you know, in secret groups. They don't even dare uh, communicate online anymore because they're afraid they'll be accused of child abuse or what have you. How, generally speaking, are parents reacting uh, to this and how are they responding? Are are they generally affirming or or are they trying to figure out how to put the brakes on and, and convince their daughters to wait before they take these irreversible steps? So parents are reacting in various different ways, but but what you said is exactly right. They are in they are really stuck between a rock in a hard place and the reason is is because the public schools are now pushing this so the public school will give your kid a new name and 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 identity and assign them to a boys bathroom and boys you know stay with the boys on on the camp class overnight without even telling the parents it'll be school policy in many places not to tell the parents new york new jersey uh, california has they have those policies um so parents are in big trouble parents if they raise any objections will get fired I mean, they fear they will get fired, and in some cases, they will be. Um, they are afraid of being completely isolated um, in their communities. But there's something else, too. They're really scared that their child will cut them off. The child is engaging in something that doesn't look natural to the parent. And let me say that the overwhelming majority of parents who called me are prog- politically progressive. They have no problem with gay children, okay? It's not like being gay. Um, it's very, very different. This is a child suddenly saying, I'm a boy, I know I was a boy, I, I, I've always been a boy, and entering this sort of you know, mental warp in which they believe things that aren't true and insist you accept them as well. And so that's when parents usually say, hold on, honey, I, I, this testosterone, you're gonna end up infertile. What are you doing? Um, and usually that's where the, the you know, parents finally say enough. Um, and, and sometimes the relationship breaks down. Um, so getting into the, the social contagion aspect for a minute, I, I know you've written about this quite a bit, so I wanted to ask you about it. Uh, there's a, it's sort of a two-part question. The, the, the Dr. Lisa Littman study, um, which was released and, and confirmed a lot of what your research said and what other people were saying, but then almost immediately got disavowed by, by Brown University. So what did that study tell us? And then why did the study sort of get memory hold almost immediately? So... Um Lisa Littman work, I've interviewed Lisa Littman many times, and she's Brown University public health researcher. And her work was really the jumping off point for my book. And what she did was she looked at the rates of um, transgender identification among, you know, or um, among adolescent girls by talking to parents. And she found that this was a very atypical kind of gender dysphoria. It didn't make any sense. All of a sudden, people with teenager girls with no childhood history were declaring themselves transgender and saying they had gender dysphoria. Now, there were a couple interesting things she found. 
Um, the paper's very interesting. The reaction to it was also very interesting. But some of the interesting things she found was that within friend groups, the prevalence of transgender identification was over 70 times what should be expected. Now that's a clear indication of peer contagion, right? Because 70 times the expected prevalence rate shouldn't occur in a friend group, right? That's just so massive. Um, she also found that these were overwhelmingly white parents, that they were highly educated. Um, they tended to be politically progressive. So there were a number of really interesting findings. But of course, because if you question anything around this, and, and it caused an uproar, her, the, the, the summary of her work and the press release for her work was stripped by Brown University from its website. This was unheard of when it occurred. Um, you didn't treat an, a serious academic study that had been peer reviewed as it had you don't treat it like that. Um, it wasn't something that, you know, you waited for the mobs to tell you whether it was acceptable science or not. Yeah. One of the, the interesting things when I was researching the subject was this, this sort of these boutique industries that have popped up around the idea of being trans. And when I started researching this, it was almost hard to believe what I was watching, but these videos had millions of views and it was videos on, on Packers, which was for girls to pack their underwear in order to appear male, uh, chest binders so that they could wrap around their chests and, 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 and flatten themselves so they would look male. Um, even these strange prosthetics that would help them pee standing up and things like that. And, and even you could order hormone drugs on the internet so that your parents wouldn't know you were taking them and start taking them without any adult oversight. Um, what did you find out about these, these industries and the, these things that are being marketed to kids? Right. I mean, of course, binders, you know, very often the YouTube influencers will tell you where to get the binders and tell you how to get the hormones and even tell you what to tell your doctor so that you get that, you know, which clinics to go to and what to say to make sure you get them with no problem. Um, uh, of course, you, you didn't even hit the biggest money makers of all, which are testosterone and um, the surgeries. They're very expensive. And the fun thing about them, I mean, I, I say fun, you know, ironically, you know, uh, you know, uh, sarcastically, but the thing about the surgeries is, of course, because you're not a boy, because every cell in your body is stamped with XX chromosomes and because the, even your bone morphology is different. The surgeries run on and on. There's a surgery for everything. And once you start testosterone, you can never go off it. Testosterone is expensive. They have to take massive dosage and doses and they can never go off it. The reason they can never go off it is because they're women. So the moment that they allow their testosterone level to drop, they will lose a lot of effects of testosterone and they will end up in an in-between state. So if they want to keep the effects of testosterone, they have to be a lifetime patient. This is very, these are big money makers. So I know there's, when it comes to pinpointing why this has taken place, there's, there's a bunch of different reasons. You've detailed many of them. Let's start with the money. Um, because, because we're, we're sort of proceeding naturally from these boutique industries, the surgeries, the surgeries are expensive, as you point out. These 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 people are lifelong patients, although we're very early in this experiment, so we don't know fully how this plays out over decades. What role does money play, uh, to your mind, in this massive shift that we're seeing take place among young people? It's a good question. Um, there's no question that I think that, that one of the biggest roles is that the doctors were so incentivized to lower their standards. Um, and the 
to the Affordable Care Act told insurance companies that they could not discriminate between procedures they would afford, they were going to afford, um, you know, cisgender or non-transgender people and transgender people. So if you gave birth control to a woman, if you, if, if an insurance company wanted to cover birth control for a normal woman, it had to also provide hormones for a woman who want, who said they were a male. Um, there was enormous company on insurance. There was enormous pressure. Sorry on insurance companies to provide for this and then um, on doctors to produce and, and to deliver the goods. Um, and I, you know, I interviewed all kinds of doctors for this. And one of them, for instance, I interviewed one plastic surgeon off, you know, on background. And he said to me, he's a very, very highly skilled plastic surgeon in, in microsurgery. And, and that's one of the things you need for various uh, gender reassignment surgeries as a microsurgical specialty. And he said that his hospital, he doesn't perform gender reassignment surgeries because he thinks that goes against why he became a doctor. But he said that in his own hospital, they are such major money makers that they are willing to assign basically any surgeon gender surgery, even if they're not qualified in, for instance, transferring peripheral nerves. So in his view, the doctors that he saw performing these surgeries were not at all qualified to do the work. Um, so you're, you're seeing a massive, you know, they're chasing after a profit motive and, and very often these, these people are not getting the best, you know, health care by a long shot. Secondarily on the ideological motive, because on one hand, it, it, in this is sort of par for the course with the LGBT movement. Right after Obergefell passed, we saw one um, very prominent um, activist say, next step is punish the wicked. So there is a certain uh, element of the LGBT movement that wants to, to force acquiescence with, with their overall ideology and agenda. But the interesting thing about the, the transgender phenomenon is that in some ways it, it runs it runs counter to previous progressive ideology. So you're seeing uh, feminists like Jermaine Greer, who was one of the the radical feminists of the 60s and 70s, getting deplatformed for for opposing transgender ideology. You also have uh, of men like Douglas Murray, um, who are gay, saying that he's actually concerned as well that some people would prefer to transition rather than than come out um, come out as gay. And so, in some ways, that the, the trans ideology is is opposed to previous progressive movements, and yet it's become sort of the the carte blanche um, cause celeb. And and you cannot. It's more dangerous, it seems, to contradict the transgender ideology these days than to contradict these these other movements. How has it? Has it taken hold so quickly? How has people like have people, pardon me, like Jermaine Greer, uh, sort of lost their 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 progressive credentials overnight? It's it's been breathtaking to see how quickly this has happened. That's right. I mean, one thing to note is that LGBTQ is not one community. It really isn't. Probably it never has been. A gay person, a gay person, remember asks or a gay adolescent asks his parents to accept him for what he is. A transgender adolescent asks his parent to accept him or her for what she is not. It's a very, very different ask. Um, and it is often in direct conflict. I, you know, I interview a lot of lesbians and, and other, you know, um, so-called members of LGBTQ in the course of this. And one of the things they often point out is that lesbians and women have suffered greatly from the rise in status of um, you know, from the rise of the transgender movement. One of the reasons is, is because they find women being redefined. 
They have been told that sex is irrelevant. Of course, homosexuals do not believe that sex is irrelevant since they are, by definition, same-sex attracted. So, you know, I, I talk to a lot of lesbians and I interview them in my book and they say things like, sex is what matters. Gender is irrelevant. Who cares if a girl has short hair or plays with trucks? It's gender that's irrelevant, not sex. And, uh, you know, it's a, a view I happen to agree with. So how how have they have they they accrued so much cultural power in such a short amount of time, right? We see we see people that are getting are getting fired for refusing to say phrases like 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 uh, the word the, the craziest one was her penis phrases that would have been so foreign a very short time ago. I'm not like I'm not very old, and this stuff is all very very fresh and very very new, and yet it seems like. Uh, this became the new cultural standard overnight. Like I look at people even like Joe Biden, who's now totally on board with the whole transgender ideology. 15 years ago, he would have no idea what anybody was talking about if they'd approached him with this sort of thing. So how have they managed to uh, establish a new consensus so quickly? Well, you know, there are a lot, a lot of things that were politically done that were very effective. Uh, America loves a good civil rights cause. Um, and of course there were extremely important and legitimate ones in our past, like women's rights, rights of blacks. Um, this just became the new civil rights cause. Um, I, I don't, that, at least that was the cloaking or how it was sold. A couple other things happened. The um, activists worked very hard in the medical associations, the professional associations to get the affirmative care standard passed, meaning that the standard of American pediatrics, um, society, all kinds of um, American, endo the endocrine society, um, uh, this, the psychological um, professional organizations, all require now that if, if you walk into a therapist's office or a, you know, your pediatrician's office or your endocrinologist's office and you say, I think I might be a boy. Can you call me Jim? I feel like a boy. The, th the response has to be, okay, Jim, you're a boy. Um, that is a very strange standard. Obviously, we're, we're displacing the judgment, the medical judgment of the doctor. And this happened right through the medical organizations. And that had a, that had a really profound impact. Now, looking at this from a medical perspective for a minute, uh, because one of the things that, that you're, a lot of your research focused on that we do need to discuss is what the impact of this is on 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 girls right now and the long-term impacts of these, this, these medical uh, adventures that they're embarking on. If a girl, pre, uh, let's say prepubescent or, or, or recently arrived at puberty, wants to transition into a boy, what does that process look like? Oh. Um, so it depends what age she starts. If she starts with by blocking puberty, so that usually starts between ages eight and 11, um, she'll stop, um, she'll go on a drug called Lupron, very often is the drug they go to. Um, this is a very, very significant intervention. It stops puberty from developing not only her sex organs, but of course, hormones will know, it shuts down part of her pituitary that stimulates uh, puberty and, and the hormones will no longer shower her brain. Um, her sex organs will probably not, she won't develop secondary sex characteristics and she won't um, also probably um, attain the potential for orgasm um, or, or the size of a normal, of, you know, the size and, and, and capacity of a normal um, sex organs. Then there is it, the next step after puberty blockers. So assuming she's already been through puberty, which is the population I really look at, the ones who have been through puberty, they start with cross-sex hormones. So in, in the case of girls, they start with testosterone. Testosterone um, 
does a lot of very serious things to the body. First of all, she's going to be taking 10 to 40 times what her normal body would have because it's very hard to get a girl to develop the kind of uh, aesthetic things she's looking for, body hair, facial hair, all, all the masculinization of the voice. And some of these effects are permanent. The body and facial hair does not seem to go away. It will actually change her features too. She will get more masculinized features. She will, her fat will be just redistributed. She will feel great. Her anxiety will be under control, but she will very, very likely put her fertility at risk. And in fact, it's so her, her risk of endometrial cancer goes up so high that um, very often after she's been on it for five years, she'll need a prophylactic hysterectomy. Um, that's very common. The doctors will recommend it. Um, then there's top surgery, which is removal of, of healthy breast tissue, um, which is in its own, its own sort of horror in many cases. And the, and the reason for that is it's the only instance in which a girl can come to her doctor, a young teenager can come to her doctor and say, you know, basically trust me, I feel bad in my body, I'll feel better without this. The doctor will see no symptoms. They will have no therapist note, and yet the doctor will remove a healthy biological capacity. There's no other area of medicine where that's permitted. A doctor can't destroy your eyesight just because you feel much better if you had green eyes, if you can you know, pop in new eyes and you won't be seeing, but they'll be green. That's what happens to the breast. Breasts are not just, as I, you know, as I learned in the process of this, they're not just lumps that look like breasts. They are, you know, complicated. They involve ducts and, you know, they have, you know, all kinds of capacity. They have, you know, produce milk and they have erogenous zones and they have all this capacity that is absolutely destroyed by these surgeries and, and really just based on a, a teenager's say-so. Now, one of the things that I found when I was there was a recent column um, published in the uh, in the UK on detransitioners, uh, and one of the things one of the young women said she had a, a permanently deep voice. She had the five o'clock shadow. She said these surgeons should be in prison. And one of the thing one of the questions people are starting to ask is what happens when you have a an exploding population of young women who, before it was legal for them to smoke, drink, drive, or vote, were permitted to undergo treatments that eliminated their ability uh, uh, to have to have n- natural sexual orgasm and limit their ability right off the bat to ever have children. Before they were old enough to understand either of those two things, you've got this huge population that's being denied two of the things that arguably bring the most amount of human pleasure, a healthy sexuality, as well as being able to have your own children. Now, not everybody wants to have children, but most people at least want to make that decision for themselves uh, when they when they have the, the, the capacity to make that decision. But these decisions are being taken by people who don't understand the implications of it, what what is this growing population going to do, and what is this going to mean for our culture? It's a good question. Um, I, I think you you really nailed it when you said you know they don't appreciate the consequences. One thing to to know is that teenagers today are very young, and they've been able to study this. Um, you know, I, you know, talk about the work of Jean Twenge in my book, and she's. You know, teenagers today are so sheltered for various reasons. Their Gen X parents didn't allow them as much freedom as they got. And they, they go, they may be 18 years old, but many of the, most of the parents I interview, they'll say, I know my daughter's 17, but she acts like she's 14. That's a very common comment. You would think she was 14. That's very common comment 
that I get. So these girls go off to college very young, but they have a feast of powers over their body, as, as you say, including destroying reproductive capacity for girls who really can't envision why they would ever want to have a baby. They'll say, oh, I'll just adopt, it's fine. And I've had, you know, I've interviewed girls who will say that. And of course, you know, I look back on, at myself and even though I wanted children someday, even I, you know, I'm Gen X, but I didn't really understand what it was to want children at 18. And that's very common. Um, I also couldn't imagine why it would be a loss not to be able to breastfeed. Um, there were a lot of things that I wouldn't have understood what I was giving up. And yet girls, and in some cases, depending on the age of medical consent, it's much earlier in Oregon, it's 15. Girls are able, girls who cannot get a tattoo are able to permanently disfigure their bodies. Um, it's, it's not good. And I interview a lot of detransitioners in the book, girls who later regret it. And I just want to say, if you're a detransitioner listening, there is life after detransitioner, after detransition. There are wonderful people out there who can help you sort this out. Um, I've interviewed them. They're wonderful young women, but but it's it's not easy. What are the permanent effects that we know so far? Because this this information seems to be constantly changing. Just over the last twenty four months, I've seen medical authorities come out and say this is very reversible. Don't worry about it. Puberty blockers is just to give you more time to make the decision. And then there's there's studies coming out and saying no, actually, if you start taking puberty blockers at X number of months, the changes are somewhat permanent. Uh, the the changes are permanent much earlier than we thought, or at least have the potential to be. And it kind of seems like we launched on this experiment, and then you know every six months or so, this new discovery comes out, and they're saying, whoa, this thing that we're doing actually has a much greater impact than we thought. There was a an expose uh, that the BBC ran uh, just the other week explaining that so many of the gender clinicians uh, at the Tavistock Clinic in the UK are, are, are ringing the alarm about what's being done, about how this is all being rushed. So what, what is the research right now? When, when do these things start to have permanent effects? Okay, so starting with puberty blockers, which of course is a little, most of the kids I talk to have never been on puberty blockers because they start, they suddenly discover a transgender identity at puberty. Um, but, but going back to puberty blockers, which are typically administered at ages eight to 11, um, they, they, first of all, the, the most important thing to know is we have no idea what the long-term effects of stopping someone's healthy puberty are. This has never been done before. So puberty blockers like Lupron have been used in things like chemical castration. We've used them before for years, but they are not FDA approved and have never been studied long-term on in terms of what it what it will do to the body to stop healthy normal puberty we don't know we do know a couple of things that um it will affect bone density um there's a heightened risk of osteoporosis we do know that the hormones won't be able to shower the brain there's some indication that that will affect brain development we do know that um it, because it arrests development of the sexual organs, they probably, if they go on to cross-sex hormones, it will guarantee infertility. And um, they may also never gain the capacity for sexual um, uh, or orgasm. So it doesn't look good. Let me say that. Um, you know, I, I'm sure there are other long-term effects we don't yet know. How are medical professionals justifying everything you just said? It's interesting, I interview them in my book. So my book, I talk to everybody. I talk to people who um, perform what they call top surgery, which is unnecessary double mastectomy. And um, 
and they feel very good about it. They have a very grateful population that's very excited to get their their um, top surgery. They feel very validated. Look, I really am trans. I mean, that's one of the things about being part of this um, group in this identity is the moment these girls identify, they have their marching orders. They know what's next and they're celebrated. I mean, I interviewed girls who would say to me, the, mo the hardest thing was I came out as trans online at 13. I identified myself as trans at 13. And I was immediately showered with congratulations from friends. And I was lonely at the time, they'll tell me. And I was showered with congratulations, many, many from adults who said, I'm just so proud of you. I want to be there for you. And lo and behold, turned out some of those adults weren't so nice after all. But you, you sort of set up a flag and invitation to predators when you're a kid online declaring a new sexual or gender identity. When parents, progressive parents, are trying to figure out what to do, um, what position is it possible at this point for parents to discourage transition? Because it does not seem, the parents I've talked to say it's virtually impossible without risking, well, in Canada, uh, getting your kids taken away from you, especially if a custody uh, um, dispute is involved. What are the options for parents whose children are identifying as transgender, but don't want their child to, to, do, to, to embark on essentially this transition? Right. So it depends what the age of the child is and what their situation is. Are they in the middle of a custody battle over it? You know, the, the child and, um, and, and really how old, how old the child does matters a lot. Okay. So if, and is the child still living with them? Right. Okay. Anything you, I will say this, anything you can do to postpone this until the child reaches, you know, an older age, the more likely that they won't go through with it. Okay, um, because it's very normal to go through, especially every every woman can tell you that at some point she was very uncomfortable in her body during puberty and thought, oh, my gosh, it would be so much better to be a boy. So the longer she can get, you know, along into getting used to her body, the greater the chances that she'll settle on her own. She'll find relationships, she'll have a healthy life and she won't feel the constant discomfort with herself. Um, I think that if, if parents are really in the throes of this and they are helpless because the child has moved out or whatever, for, first of all, a support group is really, really helpful. Um, parents of ROGD kids is a great resource. Um, Fourth Wave Now is another resource that's also very good. Um, and, and it's a place where parents can connect with other parents and share what worked, what didn't, and, and just give each other some support. So you've talked to a lot of detransitioners. You've written about this. What is the... like? Is there a, is there a, a narrative, a, a common narrative you hear from detransitioners? They all have an individual experience. What are you hearing from that community? Oh, great question. Um, so I love detrans. I mean, I love talking to detransitioners. It's always fascinating because they're, they're sort of, they've lived it and they can tell you very honestly what worked with them and what they were, you know. And um, a, lot, a lot of the young women I, I profile in the book were just so articulate and so brilliant. And they, first of all, they're very honest about the fact that they sort of talk themselves into it. That, that's very, something that's very obvious to them now. And that they had a lot of encouragement from friends. One thing to know is that teenagers specifically are not only more, more prone to risk than adults, but they're more prone to risk based on friend approval. They're much more likely to take big risks because their friends think it's a good thing um, than adults. Um, so, you know, these girls... You know, they end up in a place where at some point they come up against something, and many of them will describe this, 
that they realized um, at some point they came into contact with somebody who didn't go along with gender ideology and they thought, gosh, that makes a lot of sense. Why did I think I wasn't a woman just because of X or Y, just because I was good at math, just because I, you know, I might've been gay, just because of a, a number of things. And all of a sudden everything starts to fall. Um, and, and, they're tr and very often their friends who, who identified as trans with them will try to stop them from desisting. That's a big thing. They push them to stay in. Once you're trans, you don't wanna be excommunicated from this community. Um, and they will, they'll cut you off. Um, so the detransitioners are just a wonderful group. And I, I interviewed a bunch of them, a number of them in my book, and they're a wonderful group for explaining what, what it was like for them and what finally helped them sort of see their way back to being a woman. What sort of trauma and do the, those who have, have gone the route of bottom surgery, top surgery, what do they have to deal with? I've, I've interviewed one or two, um, but I've also read a lot of, of, of the Reddit threads and the things that they're posting online. Most of the time, they don't even dare attach their, their real name to it. Um, what, are, what is that like to come through the other end and realize you've made irreversible decisions? Those who aren't desisting, but have already made some of the most monumental decisions and, and have to face that. How, what is that experience like based on what they've told you? And, and, and how, do they, how do they figure out how to move forward with that? It's very hard. I mean, you know, it depends what they've gone through. Okay. So, you know, look, I, I, I want to stay positive because these girls who come through it, there, there, there is life after detransition and they're so they're, they're such a wonderful group of young women. And it's really important that they all know that they can, they, there are surgeries to undo all kinds of things. And, and yes, there may be some loss of capacity, but there are other surgeries that will help it, at least cosmetically and maybe even more regain some function. And, um, and to, you know, it's, it, it, girls have been able to move on, young women have been able to move on with their lives in wonderful ways. Um, I will say that most of them do not pursue bottom surgery. So a thing to know about these young girls who are in the midst of this craze is they know they don't want to be a woman, but they don't exactly want to be a man. Right. So very rarely do they pursue bottom surgery, which is a good thing. And I think it's a good thing because this surgery is enormously risky and it's beset by all kinds of complications. If they went through with bottom surgery, and I have talked to people who did and regretted it, it can be a very grisly procedure all kinds of things can go wrong. You know, fashioning a penis from a woman's forearm, which is what they do, they de-sleeve the forearm, they pull off the skin and artery and nerve and try to fashion a penis from that, then requires subsequent surgeries to try to get it to harden or penetrate or even just um, urinate in a clean um, line instead of a spray. These are, and I mean, I have heard really horror stories and I talk about them in my book about what what can go wrong um you know the, the go, getting through a bottom surgery is not an easy thing um I, I am I am told that when the best microsurgeons in the world do this it can it can be very effective but I have heard way too many um negative uh stories to think that um top that to think that bottom surgery is something that should ever be pursued lightly uh, one of the things that we, we we do have to address before signing off is the main argument that anybody you're discussing this with on, on Twitter or on TV are going to bring up immediately, which is the reason these surgeries are medically necessary is because if they don't get them, if they don't get the hormones, they don't get that, they're going to they're going to commit suicide. And 
I think uh, Ryan T. Anderson deals with this very well in his book, uh, When Harry Became Sally, when he points out that actually that conclusion is not supported by any of the long-term studies we have available. I believe the be- I believe the longest-term study was from the University of Bern, um, which was over 15 years and found no difference in suicidal ideation between those who pursued transition and those and those who didn't. But what would your response be to those who say this is medically necessary because suicidal ideation will result if if they are, if these treatments are not pursued? That's just not true. Um, I know it's a lie that gets told again and again. There have many. Stu- there are several studies and indications we have now that affirmation, um, puberty blockers, testosterone, you know, gender surgery does not alleviate um, suicidal ideation or suicidal risk in the way that they claim it does. So Ken Zucker did a great study. He's a famous psychologist and expert in gender dysphoria. He did a famous study in which he showed that. Um, kids with gender dysphoria had no worse mental health outcomes than kids with similar other psychological issues. So very often a kid will, will, will have, gen, or a child or adolescent will have gender dysphoria and also anxiety and depression. And he showed that the mental health outcomes were no different in terms of suicidal ideation. The, the likelihood of suicidal ideation um, was no higher or the, the incidence of suicide was no higher in, in population with other similar comorbidities. So it, well, there was no reason to believe that it was the gender dysphoria that was causing the high rates of suicidal ideation. Do I think that this is a troubled population with you know very alarming rates of suicidal ideation? Absolutely, I do not minimize that at all. The question is, is, is this a cure? Is the gender dysphoria the cause of their mental, other mental health problems? Is it the cause of the suicidal ideation? And is gender surgery or gender hormones a cure? And I think the answer there is clearly no. And we saw that from the Tavistock Clinic in the UK, which you mentioned, the girls who had been put on puberty blockers had no better mental health outcomes than the, than the control group who had not. So this is absolutely no cure and we should stop lying about it. Now, how do you see this unfolding? Because it seems like there there's a few different ways that this could end. There are some predicting that the... Uh, the medical malpractice lawsuits in a decade are going to be like astronomically high. There are others who predict that uh, once people have embarked on this, the large majority of them are going to feel it necessary to continually defend it. As you pointed out, friends often uh, discourage their friends from from desisting. Uh, Then there's the fact that the large majority of people still do not, have not bought into the trans ideology. They haven't bought into this idea that that sex is interchangeable, that a man can be a man or a woman simply by identifying as such you see they tried to like well like jordan peterson as an example they tried to cancel him over the gender pronouns thing and and he got rich and famous which proves that there's a a fairly sizable group of people who haven't bought into this yet how do you see this unfolding um both as as, as a in, in the medical community and in the culture at large oh well in the medical community i see this ending in the courts um these girls have to start bringing lawsuits who regret and the reason is is because you don't take a 16 year old who says they're gender dysphoric and on their own self-diagnosis remove healthy breasts. Right. I mean, that much should be obvious. Um, it, it seems such an obvious violation of the Hippocratic Oath and yet doctors are doing this all over the place. So there, you know, and the idea that a gender clinic gives out test hormones on a self-diagnosed basis without even a therapist note is really, is really shocking and it's going on all the time. So, um, so I do think this will eventually end in the courts. 
The question of what it will do in the broader culture is, is harder. And the reason is they've been pushing gender ideology now in the schools so hard for so long. We're going to have a population that is incredibly gender confused. Um, I don't know what to do about that except to have parents develop a backbone and go, go in there and find out what's being taught to their kids and pull their kids out. Um, I, I shouldn't have said developing the backbone. I'll tell you why, because they, what the parents are up against is, is monstrous. And very often they don't even know. They can't imagine that you would really be confusing children this way. And yet the schools are. So, um, you know, in terms of the broader culture, I hope there's a backlash to some of this. Um, I, I, I hope so, because honestly, it's, you know, it, it's had all kinds of negative effects. Um, to pretend that uh, a, a teenager is suddenly out of nowhere with no history of gender dysphoria is suddenly transgender. Um, and we are really hurting a whole generation of girls. Yeah. When you look at how fast this has taken, this has sort of taken shape, um, what do you think is the most effective way for us to push back? So one one of the one of the methods, obviously, is is the one you pursued, which is is you wrote a book and and you write ma- many phenomenal columns on this issue for for a variety of publications and provide a much needed voice in the culture pushing oh, back. No, I really I really do appreciate a lot of the columns. The one you wrote in Newsweek was was just phenomenal, and this book is 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 really necessary to have everything in in one place to really access. But what can average people and parents do to protect first and foremost? their families and then make an impact in the culture at large on this issue well i give a a lot of advice in the book or at the end of the book and and one of the things is social media social media has to go they have to get their kids away from social media we know that it is directly tied to all kinds of mental health problems for our youth we know that girls are susceptible to comparing themselves to each other to thinking worse about themselves to measuring their bodies against each other. This has to stop, it's driving our girls mad. I mean, honestly, it's it's very cruel what it does uh, to all teenagers, but especially young girls. Um, So so that's one thing. Another thing is to oppose the push of gender ideology in a school. There is no reason that a school can't show compassion for a gender dysphoric child and make sure that no one bullies that child without pushing gender ideology in the school. It's completely unnecessary. You can you can absolutely have a enforce a policy of no bullying and also not indoctrinate an entire student body in gender ideology. Um, those go together. Um, another thing is is parents should you know absolutely. I think they should take, remember that they are still the parent and they should take with a grain of salt identity proclamations from their, from their young teens. Okay. If a child's 13 and comes to you and says she's a lesbian, that doesn't mean you have to do anything. That doesn't mean you have to take her to every pride parade. You could just leave her to figure stuff out. Um, and I don't necessarily think online is the best place to be figuring that thing out, but but you don't, there, sometimes Gen X parents think, oh, now I have to do something. And sometimes the answer is you really don't have to do something. You don't have to make an announcement on social media. In fact, I, I really think you shouldn't. Um, and and you, giving your child space to figure out her own sexuality is just fine. You, you don't have to suddenly announce we're all supporting our 13 year old who's decided she's a lesbian or decided she's, uh, you know, b- binary. Um, you know, just, just, she's still just 13. Yeah. What what role does social media play for parents in all this? Because we've seen a couple of, well, most recently a star from some TV show come out and announce his kid was trans, um, a seven-year-old. 
And I remember just feeling kind of nauseated when I saw the post. Like, this child is seven years old, um, first and foremost. So it, it, it kind of feels like a violation to privacy uh, regardless. But to what extent are, are, are people hurting the situation by in, insistently posting these things about the latest decision their child has made? Right. So when a girl in high school decides she made a wrong decision, she announced she was trans and they had an assembly and they honored her or every she was showered with congratulations on social media. Sometimes her parents end up moving. I've talked to parents who move because now that they've made this announcement, the child has humiliated themselves and they will be treated like, you know, a, you know, Benedict Arnold if they if they walk away from it. And it's very cruel, I think to publicly commit yourself at 13 or 14 to any identity <laughs> because you're, you're so young and to allow them and to, for parents to get online and to proclaim their kid's identity is really just cementing it and, and in a vast public sphere. And I don't know why you would ever do that. I don't think it's a good thing. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, where can people find your book? Amazon, Books A Million, Barnes & Noble, wherever books are sold. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Abigail Schreier about her book, Irreversible Damage, The Transgender Craze Seducing Our Daughters. Thank you so much for joining us this week. Subscribe to the show if you enjoyed it. Head over to LifeSiteNews.com and click on the podcast tab to check out previous shows, as well as a wealth of other life and culture commentary. Once again, thanks so much for joining us this week, and we do hope you'll join us again next week.